And I think when you have the confidence of such a loving family behind you, it gives you that push you need and also that feeling of just safety and security. It can make you uh, stubborn and headstrong, (laughs) which is something I also was. always felt so tied to my family, so tied to legacy, so tied to that big, warm, large Southern embrace of just that view of being part of something bigger than yourself and really contributing that and being proud of that. So as a kid, I guess I was fearless as a result in a lot of ways, which looking back, I think, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Hey everyone, welcome to episode 109 of the So This Is My Way podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and before we start, a special thanks to this group. Now, if you've been following the podcast, you would know that I've been talking about this group quite a lot. And frankly, it's because I couldn't possibly live without it. When I first started editing this podcast, it took me around 20 hours a week just to get one episode out. Now it takes me so much less. Five hours tops. Now, what's so special about this group? It takes your audio or video files and transcribes it, and you can then work off the transcription. So if you edit or move around a particular word, the corresponding audio and video will also be edited or moved around. It is truly a lifesaver, which is why I keep recommending it. So do check it out. The link is in the show notes below. Now, on to today's guest, Chrissy Hughes. She was the director of compliance at Barclays during the 2008 financial crisis and led efforts to acquire Lehman Brothers in the US for £1.75 billion. She then ended up working for Tony Blair, the former prime minister of the UK, for eight years before entering the world of Web3, where she now works as the general counsel for Parity Technologies. If you haven't heard of Parity, one of its co-founders is Gavin Wood, who co-founded Ethereum, helped to create the Solidity language and coined the term Web3. If you want to learn more about what it takes to operate in the highest legal sphere, then this is the episode for you. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. So the question of what I like as a child, I think, can be summed up with a few phrases. One is the baby of the family. Two is a kid who always wanted to strike out. And three is someone who has always really valued family and belonging and just having fun as well. My birth order definitely impacted my view of the world and my view of my place in the world because my siblings were 18, 16, and 14 when I was born. So some people say my name maybe should have been whoops (laughs) because back in 1977 in the South, it was not necessarily the usual thing for couples who had teenagers and who were in their 40s to then have a late in life baby. But I came along and in many ways I had five parents because by the time my parents got to me, 
they were like, oh, she'll be fine. Fine. Let her stick a fork in the light socket. She'll get a little shock. It'll be fine. I mean, not that bad, obviously. My parents were excellent parents, but my siblings took a very, very big role in my upbringing and always really supported me. And I always felt like I could never fail because they were always there to catch me and support me and really gave me a lot of confidence. And we always had a family of laughter and, you know, always joking with each other and putting each other in our places when we needed to be. So it was a great balance of that. So basically they were saying, by the time you're 17, you have to look after yourself. You're out of the house. Yeah, because, you know, you go to university, you would move out of the house and you would go live in the dorm. Still, family might help financially because obviously education is very expensive in the States. But we were always encouraged from a very young age to exercise our independence and be self-reliant. And because a lot of South Carolina is rural, you are encouraged to strike out into the wilderness. There are challenges there. But you are equipped through the skills that you learn to handle any situation that comes your way. And it manifests itself in a lot of different ways that can be traveling different places and going on adventures to go to a part of the world that may not be easily accessible. I really appreciate that approach that my parents were very keen to make sure was instilled in me and my siblings. I actually have to ask yeah. this question that since you were very independent, you were exploring the forest. How do you go from that to becoming a lawyer, which sounds like a completely different thing? So you know what, Lingya, it's really funny because my dad was a lawyer and his dad was a magistrate and his dad or him was a magistrate. No. My brother is a lawyer. My sister-in-law is a lawyer. And I have cousins who are... Oh my goodness. It is in the blood, literally. Was it almost like you had no choice? You have to just continue the family tradition. I was never forced into it. But growing up, we all worked in my dad's law firm. I was answering phones from the time I was like eight. Looking back, I didn't get paid, so it wasn't child labor, but (laughs) I certainly wasn't expected to help. My mother was the office manager. One of my brothers served papers. My sister was a paralegal. So we all took part in this family business. But I never felt that I was forced to choose it. I actually had two options for uni. I could have gone to uni on a music scholarship and just focused on piano and viola, which is something that I was very passionate about at the time. Or I could go and be in the Honors College of the University of South Carolina and focus on political science. I chose to focus on political science, but not because my family was like, you must come back and be part of the family practice or anything like that. It's because that's what I wanted to do. But I was very, very clear that I was not coming back to the family practice, that I would be going into international law. Now, at 18, I didn't really know what that meant. And I have to say, I'm also surprised by the story you just told because I didn't realize how Similar we are. I was also teetering the line between going to a music conservator. My main instrument was the violin and the secondary was piano or going to law school. So I didn't know there was such a coincidence. So you went to law school. How did you end up in Linglater's London, which is far from South Carolina? Yeah, I went to the University of South Carolina knowing that I would want to go to a law school that had more of an international focus. 
University of South Carolina Law School is wonderful, but Georgetown was more in line with my career goals. And it was through Georgetown that I went on an international internship program, actually, and worked for the Red Cross in Geneva one summer. I studied in Florence one summer, and I had demonstrated real interest in working abroad. So as a result, Linklaters would hire law students from Georgetown. And because of my demonstrated interest in that area, Linklaters gave me an offer and they said, you can choose to work in either London, Hong Kong, or New York. And so New York was too close to home. Hong Kong was too far away from home and London was just right. So in 2002, at 25, I picked up and struck out on my own, living by myself for the first time, first proper job, and started practicing law and working in the equity and debt market space in London. I noticed that you spent around four years there, which is kind of the average amount of time that lawyers spend in a law firm before deciding to go in-house or not. And I noticed you decided to go in-house, but you were at Barclays, Director of Compliance. How did that opportunity come about? So, yeah, four years was long enough. I worked with some fabulous people, and it was the most amazing foundation and so necessary for what I did next. But I knew I didn't want to be on the partner track for a variety of reasons. What were those reasons? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be really honest. As a fourth-year lawyer, so this was 2006, you were making the same amount as a first-year lawyer because for your first three years as an expat lawyer, you got a cost-of-living adjustment. But after four years living in London, you lost that cost-of-living adjustment. But you're a fourth-year associate, and you're expected to step up to the plate and run all these deals because you're a mid-level, and that's what you should be demonstrating. So you're working harder than you've ever worked before. And I had about four deals in a row. I think it was a high debt deal, an M&A transaction, and two IPOs. And they had been back to back for like a good six weeks. I've been sleeping under my desk at work, sleeping at the printers. It was just full on. Taking toilet paper from the bathroom at work because I didn't have time to go to the grocery store <laughs> when That's I did get to go home. I mean, it was intense, right? And I was finally done closed all the deals. They were all successful. And I was packing up to walk out the door and go on a long weekend. And I got a call from one of our managing associates saying, oh, we've got a U.S. tender offer memo that needs to be turned around by tomorrow morning. And at that point, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do it. I'm done. There was just no incentive at that point that was enough to keep me there, whether it was the work, the contacts, the financial aspect, the career prospects, none of it appealed to me. So I started to look elsewhere. And in 2006, compliance was not a big profession as it is today. It wasn't nearly as well developed. It was becoming more so in the States because of Sarbanes-Oxley. And, and so you were starting to see in the States lawyers from private practice who moved in-house into compliance. In Europe, that wasn't really happening yet. But I got this really cool job offer to be an advisory compliance at Barclays Capital. And I really liked the people. And I was like, actually, this is what I like. Because I like the idea of coming out of the ivory tower, as I saw it, of being in a law firm, 
where you issue opinions, but then it's up to someone else to decide how those opinions are actually implemented in practice within these institutions. And so I love that idea of taking these legal concepts and making them work in reality on the ground. Do you remember some of those initial challenges you face? Because it's one thing to be a law firm, one to be in-house, there's a huge adjustment. What were some of those challenges, especially in an area that was as new as compliance at the time? Yeah, it was one, trying to explain to people why I was there in the first place. (laughs) Who, Who is this person telling me what to do? And by the way, where is she from and why does she talk like that? So there was that challenge because, again, compliance was not as a routine and defined part of everyday work as it is now. Of course, post-financial crisis, it's very different in terms of the regulatory space. And I think another challenge was switching my mindset to be practical and pragmatic and to issue spot in a way that you have to in-house that you don't necessarily in a law firm. I'll give you an example. One of the first things I worked on was this company that money had been loaned to and it couldn't repay the loan. What it had used as collateral for the loan were buildings that housed orphans and widows and war veterans. So we were talking about how we got our money back. And I was like, guys, you can't foreclose on widows, orphans, and war veterans. (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but, you know, from a strict legal perspective, that's what we could do and, and should have done. And we're well within our rights to do it. But that wasn't the right thing to do. That's not what's the solution. (laughs) It was extending terms, I believe, at that time and working with the counterparty so that they could repay on a different schedule. Another interesting thing you mentioned earlier, you said you joined pre-financial crisis. I noticed the period of time when you were at Barclays, right smack in between that, the financial crisis happened. And I imagine you must have really gone through a lot being in Barclays. It was definitely a very interesting and a scary time. It's a bit hard to get that perspective that only time and distance will provide. You don't know day to day what's going to be happening next in the markets with different banks in the US. Barclays acquired Lehman for 1.75 billion. That's a huge deal. And the decline of Lehman from industry and historical perspective can never be minimized or disregarded because it was a massive deal and it happened like that. I had the opportunity to help build out the equity practice in Europe for Barclays Capital, which was definitely eye-opening. What were some of the main challenges in seeing this deal through that you're able to share? Since you were someone who was actually behind the scenes as opposed to me just reading the papers and thinking, wow, they saved 10,000 Wall Street jobs, but actually, what does that mean? Yeah, at the time, it was something that we all felt a responsibility to really get right. There was always this feeling that there was something greater happening. Some of the challenges would be because it's so personal. A lot of people were not happy about the changes that were happening. These were people's lifelong careers, and they had devoted so much of themselves. And now it's kind of gone overnight. So empathy is really important and also holding people accountable. So when did you decide it was time to move on from Barclays to working with a former UK Prime Minister at Tony Blair Institute for Global Change? How did that opportunity come about? Well, you know, striking out is one of the themes I keep bringing up. 
So yeah, I, I felt like it was time to strike out again. After seven and a bit years in investment banking, yeah, I'd covered most of the products that I wanted to cover by that point. And I thought oh, it's time for a new challenge. And the job with Mr. Blair came up in an unexpected way. So I thought I would just move to a hedge fund or another investment bank. I wasn't necessarily looking to leave my profession of compliance or go back into legal. I was just looking for a change. And one of my former colleagues who was CEO of Mr. Blair's, then it was called Tony Blair Associates, called me up and he was like, Chrissy, you were my compliance officer for seven years and we had been friends. He was like, let's just go get a coffee. And then suddenly the coffee moved from Oxford Street to Grosvenor Square and then into Nine Grosvenor Square, which was then the office for Mr. Blair. And then suddenly I was in the boardroom having a meeting with the board of directors for a job I didn't even know existed. So <laughs> I was just open to that opportunity. I mean, if we talk about a cold pitch, I was having to cold pitch myself for a job I didn't even know existed. <laughs> I guess I made a good impression because within, I think, about six weeks, I become head of legal and compliance for Mr. Blair's then consulting business. So what were they doing at the Institute? Because it sounds like it was a very mission-driven organization. And I saw that one of their motives was very much along the lines of, how can they make a genuine difference in the world? Yes, I was there for eight and a half years. And over that time, I worked for the commercial businesses. And those were then merged with Mr. Blair's charities. And there were three others at the time until one not-for-profit. At all times throughout the whole eight and a half years, as you said, it was very mission-driven and very much about supporting governments on the path of reform, supporting Africa in particular in terms of their initiatives. It was a very global outlook. So it was a concept of we all deserve prosperity and we should all work together to achieve that. And prosperity can take many different forms. It was a very dynamic place to work and a place where Mr. Blair's vision, which he was very clear about when he was prime minister, and he's remained consistent about throughout. And I really enjoyed my time. But again, after eight and a half years, it was time to strike out for my next challenge. So just before we move on to that part, I would just wonder, because you spent eight years in an organization so big, doing so many things on a global scale. What were some of the observations you made in terms of what it takes as a leader to run such a mission-driven organization? Because that's not difficult. I think I work with a lot of social entrepreneurs and they really care so much, but sometimes that caring means that the emotions really get wrapped up and it's just very, very different from working in a purely corporate environment. Yes. Although I would say that corporates do have missions. Linklater's had a mission and Barclays Capital had a mission. Linklater's was to support the rule of law in a global way. Barclays Capital, again, very global. Investment banks are about making money. That's a mission. Mr. Blair was more of a political mission and vision. Where I work now is probably the most mission-driven of them. One of the things about where I work now, which is different from working with something that is more political in nature, is that engineers, because they are coding, it's like their art, right? Or it's like their baby. What they are producing is so near and dear to their hearts. It 
is their life's work and passion, but it is definitely resulting in something tangible, coding, a relay chain. Contrast that with the political world and being mission-driven in terms of globalization or not promoting extremist views. That's much harder to measure. And because it's more political in nature and ideas related and also contingent upon governments and other individuals delivering policy or working on the ground to make a particular approach to a law come into actually work and come into being, that it's harder to measure. And so it's hard to gauge your success. And I think that's one of the challenges I think I felt leaving the Tony Blair Institute. Now, there's all kinds of things you can do on monitoring and valuation and value for money, and you can track how many people you've influenced. I mean, there's all these sophisticated tools, but you take a step back and you look at government's change and all the work that you've done for that four years or five years or three years kind of gone. (laughs) Or maybe part of it's there, but a lot of it has been rolled back. One of the inherent challenges of governing is it takes an amazing amount of resilience and tenacity to keep fighting. Whereas the Web3 space, we measure a lot of things by adoption and it's always building upon itself. In the political space, it can reverse itself quite quickly. So the gains you have made (laughs) may not be permanent. I love how you talked about the whole adoption rate because that's the company you're in now, which is a blockchain infrastructure firm. But before we get into that, we are talking about this thing called Web3. I believe the co-founder where you're working at, Paracy Technologies, he actually coined the term Web3. So given that you worked there closely with him, I presume, I have to ask the question, what is Web3 and how did you first hear about it? Well, I think Web3 is the next iteration of the internet. I think it's still being developed, right? And so it's not really a defined destination. When we talk about the metaverse, which is, of course, part of like the Web3 landscape, these things are still being worked out. But I think the main kind of tenets are that we are striving for better security to protect people's privacy. So the Web3 vision is creating something that protects some of those fundamental tenets and also that is not centralized, that is decentralized. Facebook or Google is an example of these mega tech firms which control a lot of what we do and what we see and what we buy. There are a lot of pioneering people who are working in this space, including Dr. Gavin Wood, who come up with the term Web3 in 2014 in a paper that he wrote. He was also one of the co-founders of Ethereum and their CTO. He is definitely a pioneer in this space and is one of the OGs and is very inspirational to work for. I feel very fortunate to be part of the team who is helping make that vision possible. This is from a legal perspective. So this is my why. You mentioned earlier about the whole protection of privacy under Web3, and Web3 is normally associated with concepts like openness, transparency, which is the exact opposite of privacy. Anything and everything that you do is permanent and is transparent. So how does this privacy concept work? 
Well, when I talk about privacy in this particular perspective, but I am talking about the lack of data collection that you have more of a say in how your information is used. You're not assigning your name necessarily to a particular IP address. Two individuals can decide to exchange currency and exchange goods and services without having to go through a middleman. There are alternatives to the traditional banking system that are being offered there. It means that there are options available that you can essentially protect your identity should you wish. You don't have to necessarily go through third parties in order to buy an NFT for instance. You're right. It is open. Everything we do is open source. So from the coding perspective, sharing our work, making work available to the global community, they can take that information and make it their own. That, of course, is open and transparent. But part of that is to empower the individual. That makes perfect sense. And I want to dive into that more because I'm an IP lawyer and I've been grappling and very interested to know how other people think about this whole area. So let's talk about that later because you were about to tell me how you first got into Web3, how you first heard about it. So what's the story behind that? I'd definitely love to come back to you and talk to you about this from an IP perspective because I've just kicked off an open source housekeeping project internally. Yeah, looking at our, and you are absolutely 100% right. That is open, transparent, and available to everyone. I've also kicked off, coincidentally, a data privacy project. Our data protection officer makes sure we are handling people's information as sensitively as possible. We are very, very conservative on these things. This is the flip side of the coin that we're talking about. You're a really open and transparent on one side, but that is also facilitating and supporting individuals. Isn't this the part where people who aren't deep in the legal regulatory world, for instance, would think, well, this is why we don't want you because you are coming in and putting all the stops and all the barriers and you are basically hindering our innovation. Isn't that what people normally say of lawyers? I just want to build, oh. but you just want to put in all the stops. Listen, I always had a mantra, Lingya, which is I cannot start off at yes. I choose not to start off at no. I start off at maybe when I'm looking at a question. And I'm always trying to think of what approach that we can put in place to support innovation. The analogy I've been using internally is we've got a Web3 beating heart. But what you need around it is a protective mesh that is flexible. And so Things like IP, data privacy, contracting, NDAs, all of these things that are our bread and butter and legal and compliance are absolutely vital. And I think part of being an advisor in, in the areas that we work in is letting people know that you aren't going to start off at no and you aren't going to stifle innovation. And if you have to say no, it's because it's a real no. It is a conversation that I've been having now. I don't even know how many times over the years. I think it just very much has to be a case-by-case -case basis. There's no other way around it. We haven't even actually gone to the background of it. So let's set the context. All these kind of challenges you're facing, it's from this company called Parity Technologies. How did you end up at Parity? 
I was in the middle of taking a three to six month break after my last job. It was after lockdown. I had been at my last job for eight and a half years. I have an 11 year old and a six year old. And I just needed to reset and decompress and very supported by my former employer to do that and was looking forward to six months in South Carolina with my family. That was like October 2021. And November, I got approached about this parody job. I don't know anything about tech. I was chief operating officer and general counsel for the Tony Blair Institute that was a general counsel role. I had 50 people reporting into me, all back office areas. I had helped move the institute from 25 people to 500. And I was like, this general counsel role sounds great, but this is a much smaller company and there is in this Web3 space. And what is this? But then I met the people. And then I found out what they were doing and I found out their vision for the world. And I thought, you know what? I want to be a part of this. I'm not going to take six months off. I'm only going to take three and I'm going to join in January. So as soon as I could, I joined because the space was moving too quickly even then. And I think it's quadrupled in speed since January. It's just insane the amount of development. I'm glad I joined when I did. So what does Parity Technologies do? We're a software developer. We are a layer zero blockchain infrastructure developer. Essentially, what we do is, if you think about the subway in New York, that subway system is made up of tunnels and tracks and trains and has stops. What we build at Parity is like that subway system. And we make sure that that subway system is functioning properly to get places. So one stop off the subway might be Broadway, and that's an NFT. Another stop might be Brooklyn, and so that's crypto. Another stop off that subway system could be Avenue of the Americas, and that's gaming. So it's enabling people to use blocks chain technology to build what they want to build, which are like the subway stops. Is there no one else building this kind of subway in Web3? Is it just parity? What are the challenges? Now, I'm not sure I should be naming our competitors. The relay chain that we have built for the Web3 Foundation is called Polkadot. So Polkadot is, is what I'm talking about when I talk about infrastructure. And it can be very inaccessible. So I think jargon busting is really important and it should be something we all take seriously if we're involved in the space. So I always like to take the time to try to make these concepts relatable. As part of our ecosystem and what we deliver, there is a coding language called Rust. You need to speak that language. Again, I am oversimplifying this. And then we have something called Substrate. Substrate is a skeleton for blockchain. You can use Substrate and build whatever you want on top of it to meet your needs. Again, this goes back to the end users. If they can speak the language, then they can build it. Then we have something called Kusama, which is like a canary network, kind of like a test environment. It has developed its own personality and has its own token, but it started off as canary environment. So before you go live on Polkadot, you have tested what you're building. Polkadot is the relay chain 
one of the things that makes polka dot and parody different is actually we allow the different parts of our ecosystem to talk. Interoperability is one of the things that is unique to us. We're thinking about bridges with other players in the community. We already have some of them set up. So there are parachains and common good chains, Ethereum and Moonbeam, and also that we are the greenest blockchain out there. There are a few articles about the fact that we are the greenest blockchain out there. One of the things that came to my mind as you were talking about this and what's so fascinating about parity is obviously if you spend any time in Web3, you will hear there are many different blockchains. They don't talk to each other. You have to transfer. ETH becomes W-E-T-H and you just go, gosh, there are so many things that you have to do. But when I ask those who are tech-driven, can one blockchain speak to the other? They always say it's actually very, very complex. And I wonder, as the engineers are coming up with these new innovative solutions, trying to let these different blockchains speak to each other on this one platform, where does a lawyer come into play? What's your role in all of this? Well, that is an excellent question. And I would say that we are still figuring that out. The first place that legal concepts come in are at the NDA stage, although we try to make everything open source. The beginning stages, you have to build things out, and that won't necessarily be available in the same way. Also, we have memorandums of understanding and different contractual arrangements with people who we are working with. We announced a few really interesting things recently. One is with the Water Foundation, and that is related to blockchain and commodities. You can measure the provenance of all different kinds of minerals. So you need to have engineers working together on both sides to see how that would work. We are also working with publishers and journalists. We're also working on social media and how blockchain can be used in social media. As a lawyer, I monitor the regulatory space. Crypto is but one part of blockchain blockchain, NFTs, gaming, the ones I just listed. Also competition. The Web3 community is still small, although it's growing. The IP, the CLAs, the data privacy, those are all areas that we are focused on as a legal team. And you can never forget, Lingya, it's all about people. So diversity and inclusion is really important. Making sure that we're treating colleagues in a respectful way that allows them to thrive. But of course, employment issues will come up. One question I wanted to go back to earlier was you talking about the whole idea of open source and having to share your work, make it available to everybody in the community. And for me, given that I have an IP background, my instant reaction is, wait, do you not own any of this is not proprietary anymore. So where do you get your value from for your company? How do you think about all these issues as a general counsel? My background is not IP. So I will certainly be guided by you on some of these things because as you said, this is very particular to this area going forward. We will always be open source, but in the current world that we live in, I don't think that is something that is really sustainable. So there is a conversation to be had about ecosystem sharing of IP versus one company within an ecosystem holding on to their IP and protecting their IP. As Web3 becomes more competitive, it starts to take on the shape of some of the industries that have come before. From a legal perspective, it's incumbent upon me to set out the risks and then decisions are made about how those risks are addressed or not addressed. 
And what about the regulations that you see coming into play? I imagine you must be keeping track of it closely. So what's happening right now? What do you see going in the future? Just yesterday, did you see the Coinbase complaint that was filed against the U.S. Treasury in the context of Tornado Cash? I think it is worthwhile for everyone to follow that case with interest because at the same time you have, you know, around Tornado Cash, obviously it was a mixer and it was sanctioned. Sanctioning code is one question, right? Code, the Supreme Court found that code was free speech. So there's a question there. We go back to privacy. Is the use of a mixer in and of itself something that shouldn't be allowed to happen? Well, this is my privacy point. The way I choose to protect my financial privacy is I should be allowed to have some options there. And just because I choose to protect my financial privacy doesn't mean I'm doing anything criminal or wrong. And I think that is an important concept to take away. I thought what was most fascinating was Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong said in this blog post that Treasury Department had gone too far by sanctioning entire technology instead of specific individuals. And it just sounds as though this is so much bigger than just one company. And if we don't get this right, you could just impact an entire space that's evolving right now. Absolutely. But it also did impact an individual because in the Netherlands, the developer has been arrested. Now, the founders have not been. But I read that apparently the developer was arrested because he was directly involved in the whole spinning off the illegal proceeds. And it was less about him being a developer than the fact that he was actually involved in this. Not sure. So if you read the statement that has been issued by the police in the Netherlands, at least I think it was as of August 26th, and I don't think there's been an update. It wasn't clear from that statement whether it was individual facilitation of money laundering or corporate facilitation of money laundering. It's still an ongoing investigation, and they say there may still be more arrests. Isn't it supposed to be a mixer in the first place? (laughs) Exactly. I think it's also worthwhile following what's happening with the Coinbase insider dealing case. Also, the Solana class actions in Europe, Liz Truss is now prime minister, and she has stated that she will have a crypto or uh, blockchain friendly agenda. We shall see what comes about. There was also Mika in Europe, and there's ongoing discussions. There are some interesting publications that just came out of Singapore. I think it was last week about privacy again. (laughs) In Australia, they just set up a crypto division to investigate crypto crimes. So we're seeing all over the world different approaches. And of course, you know, you can't forget Africa. You can't forget South America and Central America. And anyone listening can tell very quickly that there's just so much going on. You just have to spend the time to read, to follow, and to learn more. So I want to go the fire round five questions that I always ask everybody. The first question is this. Having gone to so many different places, doing such unique jobs, having been in this eye of the storm at different instances in your life, first the financial crisis, now in Web3, do you feel like you have found your why? No. I think I'm going to be searching for my why for the rest of my life. And I think that's because I'm always growing and changing. And there will be another time where I feel like I need to strike out to do something different. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what that is next. And I look forward to that journey. 
So I think it never ends, but I have a much better understanding of who I am as a person and what motivates me, but not necessarily my why yet. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? In a professional capacity, I think I would like to be remembered as just someone who is like everyone else, has some particular characteristics. I mean, I am disabled. I'm an immigrant. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a professional. And I want people to adopt that mindset of striking out and not being afraid to try something new. So if that could be my legacy, evolving is important and empathy is important and making sure that we're supporting lots of people around us along the way. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Listening, finding those points of connection, as we were talking about earlier with the cold pitches, taking the time to understand who you're working with. I think tenacity that's important, and resilience, because things will go wrong. All of those qualities coming together, the tenacity, the resilience, the empathy, they they will all support you in your journey to figuring out your why. How can people listening connect with you, find out more about what you're doing? I am mostly involved on LinkedIn. I am starting to get involved in Twitter, although I do find that intimidating. And I have a problem with the word limit. (laughs) The character limit, I should say, because I like to talk, Lingya, as you can see. I also am always available via my parity email address, and I am involved in some Women of Web3 events in different organizations in London. I just want to encourage people to find their network wherever they are so they can learn more about this area and feel supported as I have been able to do over the last seven months. It's a very welcoming area, actually. And I was starting to be one of those. And is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered so far? The one thing I would like to say is that I am very privileged to work at Parity and be part of an organization that does have such strong culture and a mentality around the key areas of Web3 development and really work with pioneers. That is not just about tech. It's about social impact and economic relevance. And I think it will have an impact on how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And so I'm very proud that my girls will hopefully look back in 20 or 30 years time and say, my mom was a part of that and help pave the way for the true pioneers and geniuses to make it happen. So that's the last thing I'd like to say. I hope you find this interesting. Someone who's interesting to talk to about these things because it's hard to take a step back from your own journey. But I appreciate the opportunity too. And that was the end of episode 109. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodasmari.com forward slash 109. And if you haven't done so already, please do leave a rating review for this podcast. It really helps Demi to grow and be found by other people. And please do stick around for next Sunday because we will be meeting the VP of Metaverse at Hype. She went to work in theatre, then discovered the world of festivals, decided to start her own open festivals, and even launched North Florida's first coding bootcamp before entering deep into the world of Web3. She's a true testament that no task is too small if you want to explore and do something different, and she's truly made a remarkable career for herself. So do stick around and see you next Sunday.